Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, Joseph R. Mashi. He's a clinical professor. He deals with medicine and infectious diseases, uh, environmental medicine and public health, more so these days. Um, he had written uh, several books on HIV and worked on it uh, quite extensively. That's what I wanted to talk to him about today. Although, again, he's, uh, his focus has changed a little bit recently, but uh, he's at Mount Sinai. And uh, Joseph, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. If you would, again, it's going back a little bit in your timeline, but tell me about how you first uh, encountered AIDS and HIV and sure. what led you to work on it for so long. Well, I started my training in infectious diseases at Mount Sinai in 1980, and this was uh, the year where the initial cases of what turned out to be um, uh, later recognized as AIDS were identified. Uh, there were some in New York. I had uh, one of those patients. There were some in Los Angeles. It was originally thought to be confined to gay men. Uh, then it quickly became apparent that that was not the only group at risk. Um, and then over the next few years, uh, what was happening internationally was the identification of the infectious agent that caused it, the human immunodeficiency virus. And locally, what we were doing is creating um, outpatient and inpatient services for a really quickly expanding number of people with AIDS. And uh, this was at a time when uh, not much at all was known about how to treat AIDS. Uh, there were no antiretroviral drugs available and nothing proven to work for about um, 10 years after that. Uh, we were trying our best to prevent or treat opportunistic infections as they came along, but we were also doing a lot of uh, emotional support. Um, and uh, it was a... Uh, a sad but inspiring period for me because um, many of the patients got uh, very attached to us as staff. We built a staff that was um, very um, all-purpose. Uh, they uh, Together we created um, what we called the living room, which was a space in the hospital that was furnished as a living room where patients could come seven days a week and just relax, watch television together. Uh, these are people at that point that were largely isolated from their families. And uh, in some instances, we became a, like a second family. We had monthly uh, memorial services and concerts uh, for them. So that was the first 10 years of the HIV uh, epidemic. It was um, sudden and it was tragic and it was um, not uh, really treatable at, at all the way it is today. You know, I know the public has heard about AIDS and HIV a lot, but what are some of the basics of it? Like what are the fundamentals that the public doesn't know yeah, well, I think that, you know, the basics from a medical standpoint are um, the human immunodeficiency virus uh, type 3 is the causative agent of it. It is uh, transmitted readily through sexual contact uh, and also through um, blood contact, both through injection drug use uh, and initially through blood transfusions. Uh, the transfused blood was eliminated as a problem in the 1980s uh, as they developed screening tests for it, and they began to um, 
be able to exclude potential donors who appear to be at risk for it. Uh, so that's uh, a story. That's how HIV was spread. What it does in the body is really quite unique. It's um, a virus that's called a retrovirus, which means it is an RNA virus that reverse transcribes its RNA into DNA. And it then inserts into the host human cells DNA. And there it may remain quiet uh, for years before it produces actual clinical disease and averages about 10 years. So the people who we were seeing back in the 80s were coming in with advanced stages of this. So it was obvious that this infection had been spreading uh, back in the 1970s, uh, un unknown to anybody at that point. Uh, and then the treatments that came along since, um, as uh, many people know, we have very little in the way of treatment for any viral infection, including COVID now, we're you know, struggling to find treatment for it. And the same was true of this particular virus. And like uh, virtually all viral infections, once a person has HIV, there is no medication that will get rid of it. The best that we can do is suppress its growth and protect the cells that are most vulnerable to it from getting destroyed. And those cells are called the CD4 lymphocytes or T helper cells. And uh, one reason why this became so clinically recognizable is when those cells uh, are subtracted from the human immune system, there are certain unusual infections that uh, uh, develop very often. Uh, so for example, pneumocystis pneumonia, which was a, a very rare parasitic pneumonia became explosive in the 1980s and uh, became the commonest cause of death among HIV patients. And then other similar infections that were typically seen as rare sort of zebra infections up until then uh, became suddenly very, very common, like uh, brain infection with the, with the parasite toxoplasmosis, central nervous system infection with the yeast, cryptococcus. Uh, and then other conditions as well as these infections became obvious, um, Kaposi sarcoma, uh, which uh, had been a um, kind of a rare indolent malignancy that was seen in uh, elderly men in uh, Mediterranean countries, became a common illness in um, people with this infection, and it could develop in any part of the body. Uh, and it could also be quite aggressive and, and sort of explosive in how it developed. So we were confronted with a lot of um, conditions that we did not really have good treatment for. Uh, and the treatments had to be developed relatively quickly. Um, and as we were doing that, we were obviously desperately trying to identify vir antiviral drugs that would actually suppress HIV. And the first of those was uh, called AZT at the time. It's called Zidovudine now. And it had been an orphan drug uh, that didn't really have any use for anything. And it was one of the drugs that was tried and it blocked uh, the enzyme that the virus uses to convert its RNA into DNA. It's an enzyme called reverse transcriptase. And for years, we thought that um, we were seeing some response to it, but we started using uh, AZT in the mid to late 1980s. It wasn't really shown to be effective at all until the early 1990s, um, when it was finally shown to be effective in, in relatively limited populations, uh, particularly among pregnant women in protecting their developing child. Uh, so it was, um, and this is a, a maybe something that uh, we'll reflect on on COVID one day, the treatment seemed to be working uh, in some patients for five years. We thought we had something, and in the end, we did not. AZT alone was not doing anything. It were, we were using it, 
in very large doses. Uh, it was causing a lot of side effects and we thought we were seeing a response, but in the end of the day, we were not. So then through the 1980s, similar drugs, these are called the nucleoside drugs, were um, developed and studied and released. And in various combinations, we learned after the AZT experience that uh, drugs have to be used in combination to effectively suppress HIV and improve the immune system. Uh, they were typically used in two or three drug combinations. These were also very harsh drugs in terms of their side effects, but they actually did work, um, not as, as well as the drugs that are used today, but they did. And then in the mid-1990s, there was a major breakthrough when the protease inhibitor drugs were um, developed, and it was demonstrated that they, in combination with the nucleoside drugs, could be particularly effective. And then the story goes on and on. And I think uh, well, one, one, one quick question here, just very quickly, how do the protease inhibitors work? Because you talked about inhibiting reverse transcriptase, but right. how do the nucleoside drugs work and how do the protease uh, drugs work? Well, the quickly. protease is an enzyme, again, produced by the virus that is involved in cleaving its viral envelope down to the right shape right before it leaves the cell. So if you can attack it at that phase, it's very different from the attack point for the nucleoside drugs, which is in, you know, nucleic acid replication. But if you could attack the, the protease enzyme, that was a completely different mechanism. So that was good. Have two different mechanisms, uh, prevent the virus from assembling itself um, when it was, you know, ready to leave the cell. And, you know, in combination, they, they didn't have the additive side effects, protease inhibitors and nucleoside drugs, um, that the total nucleoside combinations ha would uh, have. And at the same time, the nucleoside drugs that we were using uh, were um, improved, they were expanded, and they were developed in less toxic um, formulations. So by the end of the 1990s, we were using primarily combination treatment with uh, protease inhibitors. One drug that was very common back then was a drug called ritonavir, and uh, nucleoside drugs like AZT in combination with D4T, for example, or 3TC. These are all abbreviations for the long names of the drugs. And then as 2000 rolled around, further improvements in treatment came along. And as uh, I began to say a little a few minutes ago, what we've reached now is about 40 either combination pills or combination regimens that can be used effectively in HIV. Also what's happened along the way, we've developed very precise measures of the amount of circulating virus in the blood, the so-called viral load. And we've learned a little bit more about the immune response uh, to HIV and what it takes to sustain the immune response. So we can test for viral resistance now. Uh, we start treatment very early initially, uh, partly because the drugs were quite toxic. They were reserved for people who were really at the advanced stages of HIV. A typical CD4 count in a normal host is between 500 and 1200. Uh, we were holding off until, uh, everybody was holding off until the CD4 count fell below 200. But in the last few years, it's become obvious that treatment at any stage is advantageous and is actually preferable to waiting that long uh, to achieve complete viral suppression and uh, complete restoration of the cellular immune system. So now the projections are quite amazing that um, an individual at age 20 who gets HIV and is effectively treated has about the same life expectancy about to age 70 something as someone who never had HIV in the first place. So we're very good wow. at suppressing this infection, um, but the downside is uh, you have to keep on the medicines uh, for life uh, at this point. The efforts have also included um, 
attempts to uh, create a vaccine to HIV that's been completely unsuccessful so far, uh, and uh, ways of preventing infection, um, so-called PrEP therapy, uh, to prevent infection after exposure, um, where people can take um, a cocktail of uh, antiretroviral drugs to prevent transmission or, or stop transmission before it causes infection. Um, and, you know, these strategies are, are very, very good. They're, you know, have been life-saving and preventing infection is um, actually simpler than we would have thought it would be uh, using the right combination of drugs. It was a study in Italy about 10, 15 years ago now looking at heterosexual partners, one of whom was HIV positive and the other one was not. When the HIV positive one was given antiretroviral therapy to suppress their viral load to undetectable, they could not transmit HIV infection anymore. So in this day and age, uh, as, as we're still hopefully one day gonna see a vaccine, because of the incredible effectiveness of the current treatment, our job is to be sure that people who, uh, that everybody is tested for HIV and anyone who is found to be positive is strongly encouraged uh, to enter care because we can save their life. Um, and it's dramatic. At Elmhurst, we are following about 1,500 HIV patients in our clinic, and over 96% of them have undetectable viral load and are, are fully um, immune reconstituted because of the, the various drugs that they're getting. So it's been a, uh, an amazing turnabout. Yeah. I'd like to ask you about some of the mechanisms of the viral action specifically. So, you know, what happens? It enters the cell and, and uh, essentially then what? At what point does it endogenize into the DNA? What well, does it, look like? it does that routinely. It uh, releases its RNA into the cell. It has the uh, enzyme reverse transcriptase uh, in the virus and it reverse transcribes because typically DNA it's transcribed into RNA. In the case of the retroviruses, the RNA is transcribed into DNA, which then inserts into the human chromosome. And there it can remain quiet for many, many years. It's very rare for anybody to get um, immune uh, damage from that quickly. There is an illness that comes along with that, so the so-called seroconversion illness, uh, at the time where someone is infected with HIV long before they have AIDS, but that illness is rather nonspecific. It's fever, rash. Some, some people don't get any of it. Some people don't notice it when they do have it. But it's an amazing illness in that it produces this acute phase, which is fairly harmless. Then it goes underground for a decade. Then it starts producing the, the illnesses that are caused by the destruction of the immune system. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Hmm. Interesting. So it becomes part of our own DNA. Its yeah. DNA material literally becomes part of our DNA. Right. And then, of course, it, it gets replicated as our cells are replicated. How does it remain independent and active once it integrates into our DNA? Like, is well, there it comes any, out again. Study of it? it comes out again into the cytoplasm and then uh, leaves the cell, destroys the cell. Uh, you know, we're talking about a target cell like the CD4 lymphocyte it eventually will start destroying that population of cells, leaving those cells, invading other healthy cells. Um, but, you know, one of the things that was really quite puzzling about all of this uh, was this long latency period, because there were no known retroviruses that affected humans. In fact, there was only one that even was recognized to infect animals when AIDS burst on the scene. Um, it was truly a shock and a surprise that there was a virus that could do this sort of thing in people. 
And, um, you know, as we talk about sometimes, there are other viral illnesses that can be um, sustained. Many viral illnesses uh, never go away. Epstein-Barr virus, hepatitis B, they, we can't really get rid of them, regardless of the host response. Uh, some viruses come and go quickly, like the common cold and hopefully uh, COVID do that. And then some viruses come, uh, get quiet, and then reemerge and cause illness later, maybe years and years later, like um, uh, chickenpox virus that later causes herpes zoster. So, you know, the, the viral spectrum il of illness is vast, and it's much bigger than we currently fully understand, that's for sure. Uh, and so there's a lot of new information that will be coming about viruses and all the things that they can do. Well, what happens in a, again, in a cell when uh, HIV infects it and it becomes part of the DNA, it makes replicates of itself, and those replicates leave. Does it destroy the cell or does yeah. it keep the cell in a state where it can produce multiple rounds of replicants but still survive? Well, it's thought that it destroys that cell and it invades other healthier cells. Um, and the, the test that we do to measure the viral load is a test that we do on plasma. And this is a way of detecting circulating HIV in the blood. And of course, if we're fully suppressing it, uh, that prevents, uh, theoretically at least, cells from getting infected by other cells because the virus has to leave the cell that it's destroying to invade a healthy cell and it should be detectable in the serum. So when we're not detecting it, what we think we're doing is arresting the whole infection, not clearing it, not curing it, but arresting it in an, an important element that it has, which is cell-to-cell -cell transmission of the virus. You know what happens to the uh, the original virus that infects and endogenizes in the DNA? Does it stay behind or does it leave too? I know it's, maybe it's not even important, but I was just wondering what happens to the original one. I'm not sure that that's entirely understood. I think it is felt that when the virus leaves the DNA, the cell is more or less at that time destroyed. So there isn't a, you know, and cells don't live that long in the first place. There isn't a cell that's living for decades, uh, generating more viral replicants. So I would just envision this as the virus enters the cell, gets reverse transcribed into the cellular DNA, stays there for a while quietly, then starts replicating itself. And when that replication begins, enters the cytoplasm, the replicant uh, viruses, and then destroys the cell. Well, what would cause, uh, you said these these infections are latent for sometimes a decade. So what, has there been any conditions that people have identified that would, uh, that cause HIV to activate? Well, only in a crude sense. Immunosuppressive therapy is thought to maybe accelerate that whole process going from zero conversion to full-blown AIDS. So corticosteroids, perhaps. But it, it's, a, it's a virus that's sort of doing its own thing, regardless of what the host immune system is trying to do. Now, if you have a host, if you have an immune disease, like, for example, lymphoma, where there uh, is sort of a replacement of the normal lymphocytes by malignant lymphocytes, malignant lymphocytes could be infected by this. They would have a very different kind of life than a normal lymphocyte would. They would not have um, um, suppressor uh, interference by other cells and could potentially make the viral replication speed up. But, you know, I, I think as as interesting as that kind of theory sounds, I don't think that there's been data to really suggest that that happens. I think when HIV goes from infection to AIDS quickly, that's typically in young, young children that that happens. And that's because the, the cellular immune system in young children is not fully formed in the first place. So if you install something that is attacking it, 
in the cellular uh, immune system, those lymphocytes have a very limited life expectancy to begin with because it's a young child, then the destruction can move more rapidly across the entire system. Hmm. Puzzling, yeah. Typically what would happen in people with AIDS is, again, they would be infected at some point. It may go quiet for months, years, maybe even a decade. Then they would start to what? what like They would start to get all these strange illnesses that they normally yeah. shouldn't get. Right. At that point, they would come to medical attention because they had one of these manifestations of really profound cellular immune dysfunction and destruction. And, you know, it, that virtually never just takes months or weeks. It takes years uh, in virtually everybody except the very young child. Uh, so it'd be common. I think the average in retrospect is 10 years between infection and AIDS. Uh, and now, even when someone presents to us with AIDS and an opportunistic infection, a person who may have never knew, known that they had HIV infection for 10 years, when we treat even them, we can bring it all under control again. We can restore their immune system. We can typically eradicate quickly any opportunistic infection that's come along and stabilize them on an antiretroviral combination. And that's how many of those 1,500 patients we're following in clinics started out. They came to us not simply because they had tested positive for HIV, but because they, they had AIDS and were hospitalized with it. And then we were able to introduce treatment. Uh, so this strategy now of treating anyone with HIV infection, regardless of how long they've had it, and regardless of what opportunistic infections we're trying to eradicate, treating them quickly within a couple of weeks is crucially important. And it's been incredibly successful to do that. So in, in the diseases that people would get, uh, was there any, um, I mean, were there major groups of diseases that people would get in different yeah. populations or was it a whole basket full of things that were apparently random? Well, you know, pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, that parasitic pneumonia was always the number one opportunistic infection. And at, at one point in the eighties, I remember a publication indicating that 70% of AIDS patients presented with pneumocystis pneumonia. And uh, at, at that point, uh, some work was done on it and it was found that many of us, probably most of us, at least in this part of the world, have a dormant pneumocystis infection. It's an innocent, innocuous organism that doesn't do any harm until you start subtracting the cellular immune system that normally contains it. Then it explodes into a very, very aggressive pneumonia. And um, this is what many AIDS patients in the 1980s, 1990s died of because they could be um, difficult to stabilize once they came in with severe pneumonia, profound hypoxemia. The other, you know, sort of uh, uh, bellwether organisms were toxoplasmosis, that parasite infects the brain. Those patients would present with stroke syndromes and on CAT scan and MRI of the head, they would have these large abscesses caused by that parasite. And as horrible as that sounds and as horrible as it looks, it actually responds to oral therapy and the abscesses heal, they go away and the neurologic deficits get better and go away. Cryptococcal infection, which is a yeast infection that is quite commonly encountered, but rarely produces uh, disease, could cause an explosive meningitis. Uh, and it has a special predilection for the central nervous system. That was the third commonest organism that we saw. And I'll never forget one case of a young man who was moving from um, Michigan to New York he drove from Michigan to New York, was able to drive most of the way, got to New York, immediately um, became very ill, uh, became unconscious within a few hours, was brought to the emergency room, was brought to our ICU, was recognized as having cryptococcal meningitis and was dead 
within 24 hours of leaving Michigan. He turned out to be HIV positive, never knew he was, had a very advanced degree of immunodeficiency, immune destruction, and was overwhelmed by that organism. Uh, but I could, you know, spend hours giving you various patient examples of how people presented and, and were uh, affected by this. But one really important thing to remember, and it's a really important globally, is the relationship between HIV and tuberculosis. As with those other organisms I've mentioned, tuberculosis, Mycobacterium tuberculo, tuberculi, is um, contained by cellular immunity. If you are infected with TB, there's only a 10% chance you will ever actually get clinical disease with TB. Nonetheless, it kills over a million people a year worldwide. And one particularly nasty combination, therefore, is to have HIV and have dormant tuberculosis at the same time, because as the cellular immune system is destroyed by HIV, your protection against progression of tuberculosis is eliminated. And then you pre progress with TB. And it's particularly difficult sometimes to control TB in the setting of profound immunodeficiency caused by HIV. Interesting. Even though I guess we have, I don't know, approximately 8% of our DNA is endogenized retroviruses, up until HIV, there was no known human retrovirus that was That's found right. anywhere? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was the simian virus that was uh, had been recognized shortly before the outbreak of HIV. But, you know, to give you an example of how this snuck up on us, I was a resident in Boston in the late 70s, and I was taking care of a gay man in clinic who had very large swollen lymph nodes everywhere and uh, fever. And he was otherwise doing reasonably well, but he, we could not understand what those lymph nodes were from. We did biopsies. It didn't reveal anything. But by the time AIDS exploded a couple of years later, in retrospect, it was obvious that he had HIV infection. And that was what was causing this problem. Uh, and, you know, as I think of people who were practicing ID or, you know, looking at AIDS in the early 80s, many of us would have recollections of cases that, wait, you know what, that patient that I had two, three, four, five years ago probably had AIDS, you know, and that's, it's an important, you know, reminder of how, you know, insidious something can be. Uh, it, right now we're dealing with an explosive outbreak of COVID and that's one version of a global um, problem, but there's also the insidious problems of uh, something like HIV that's transmitted quietly, that exists quietly for a long time and presents suddenly dramatically after it's had a long opportunity to spread throughout a population. Yeah, very interesting. What's new in the frontier in, uh, in AIDS research? Is it, uh, is it going quiet now that it's essentially treatable and it could be a lifelong condition that you can be treated for? Or... Well, you know, what are the new arms of research look like? That's taken the urgency uh, away from vaccine development, but there's still interest in that. That's a, an area that Dr. Fauci has been a pioneer and a leader in development of vaccine. But as he and others have pointed out, when we start talking about COVID vaccines, uh, well, HIV, they've been working on a vaccine for 35 years. They still don't have one. So that's a, a, a front that is still getting attention. But uh, because this is a disease that requires lifelong treatment, as you might guess, there are efforts to make the treatment much more convenient. So instead of taking, for example, back in the 80s, it would not be unusual to have a person take 16 tablets a day on various dosing schedules uh, to get all these medications in. And what's happened since then is they've steadily developed combination medications and medications that only need to be given once a day. What they're looking at now is more long-term medications maybe parenteral, like injection med medications that could be 
given maybe once a year or every six months. Uh, so that's where the forefront is. And until somebody develops a vaccine, that's where the progress is going to occur. Now, I would say, you know, we have for 10 years had a project in Ethiopia. And what I'm saying about HIV care in the United States and in the Western countries and the developed Asian countries, that's what I'm describing. In the underdeveloped world, AIDS is still a tremendous problem because of the um, difficulty in obtaining these drugs. The Clinton Foundation has been very important in, uh, in PEPFAR, the Bush uh, effort to provide AIDS drugs to Africa. But it's still, when, when you're in an environment where people don't have easy uh, transportation, where they may have to pay for their medications rather than getting them reimbursed by government as it's usually done here, uh, it raises these obstacles to care that are tragic. So it's not as though what I'm describing in our country is what's happening all over the world. There's still a high death rate. It's come down, but it's still unacceptably high death rate around the world from HIV, particularly true in Africa and in Southeast Asia. And now you've turned to what, working on COVID? Mm-hmm, right. Okay. Any, any other parallels you're seeing between the two? Uh, well, like there's a lot. I just wonder yeah, if there's other ones. I think, um, you know, one parallel that uh, is in favor of COVID is that HIV was tragically associated with behavioral risks like homosexual activity, IV drug abuse. And uh, for that reason, politically, it was uh, swept under the carpet way too long and way too much. I think President Reagan never mentioned the term AIDS throughout his eight years, and it was then that it was really exploding. Whereas COVID, since it hits the entire population, it obviously hits people who are um, in minority groups and in impoverished neighborhoods even harder, but it is a fearful outbreak that's affecting everybody. So it is um, not buried uh, the way HIV was, not hidden the way HIV was. Uh, Also, we have obviously very rapid uh, development of diagnostic tests for COVID. it's not something that hides in the body for many, many years and then pops up. But uh, one other parallel is when, when you're infected with COVID, uh, the active viral infection is over in about two weeks, but we're learning more and more about the damage that it leaves behind. So uh, those patients who have had COVID, many of them will continue to have pulmonary problems, cardiac problems, renal problems after that initial infection. So although it's unlike HIV in terms of the natural history of the infection itself, we may be accumulating a lot of people who have recovered from COVID who are going to need very specific types of medical care to deal with their organ complications from their COVID infection. One other thing is that with HIV, there is, you know, of course, has been no vaccine. With COVID, there's tremendous effort to produce safe and effective vaccines. But it, it raises this issue of how effective does a vaccine have to be in order to actually achieve herd immunity and actually be a meaningful step in the right direction. So we've had uh, the sad luxury of not having to deal with that question with HIV. So there is no vaccine. So you don't have to tell people, well, if you've been vaccinated, you can now have unsafe sex. But with COVID, since the FDA um, minimum effectiveness that has to be demonstrated for any new COVID vaccine is only 50% protection, there are going to be lots of people who are vaccinated against COVID who really don't have immunity to to the virus. So what exactly are they supposed to do? Are we supposed to measure whether they have immunity or is everybody supposed to continue using personal protective equipment? You know, it's very different, but it raises uh, some issues that are quite common to infectious diseases in general. 
And I'll make one last point about that. That one of the infectious diseases that has been remarkably easy to control with vaccination has been measles. But that's only remarkably easy when people are getting vaccinated. There is a strong variable, but sometimes very strong anti-vax sentiment against measles vaccination and some of the other childhood vaccines. Uh, and we've seen outbreaks of measles in this country, but even more importantly, there are millions of cases globally of measles, a vaccine preventable disease. So it's hopeful to speculate that a vaccine to COVID or a vaccine to HIV is going to bring the end of something. But nothing is that simple in clinical medicine. People actually have to be willing to take a vaccine uh, and it has to be demonstrated to be safe. So we have multiple hills that have to be uh, conquered before we get COVID under control. And there are some lessons from HIV. Yeah, just like it's been 35 years with no HIV vaccine, you know, COVID being a coronavirus, there doesn't seem to be any vaccines for any coronaviruses either. So yeah, well, there was the a vaccine. That it may be, uh, you know, the original SARS outbreak in 2003, they did develop a vaccine, but only after SARS was gone, you know, from the world. So this timetable, which is a little, you know, frighteningly quick, this uh, quick development of vaccines may be a good thing because we will still have plenty of infections that need to be prevented by vaccination. It's really estimated that in this country, with all we hear about COVID every day, that only about 10% of the U.S. population is immune. So that's 90% of the population that's still susceptible to this. So unless the virus magically transforms into a harmless virus, and there's not much evidence that that's happening, vaccine is the only out. Uh, so we have to hope that these vaccines that are being developed, and they're very very different mechanisms than different vaccines, will turn out to be safe and effective and, and usable, that there will be vaccines that can be distributed conveniently, hopefully will not have to be given annually, but we don't even know that yet. Well, very good. Well, Joseph, what's the best way for people to find out more about your current work and your past work? Uh, well, the uh, I think there's some information in the bio on your page. I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember if the um, PubMed connection is uh, is there. PubMed is a good place to look for anybody's, uh, it's a national um, pub, um, medical library website. So that's a good place to look for uh, work that I've done. Uh, and um, ResearchGate, uh, that site where um, researchers share ideas, uh, I'm on that site as well. Uh, and that's a good place to look for anybody's work. It's just called ResearchGate. So those are my ideas about how you might be able to find out more about what I've done. Excellent. Great. Well, Joseph, thanks for coming back again. I really appreciate My pleasure. it. pleasure. Anytime. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.